We're back. Welcome to season six of the Iron Woman podcast. I'm Rosalie, and I want to tell you, I love to bike ride. It's my favorite daytime activity. And my nighttime favorite activity is playing piano. And I'm in the middle of all of that. I like to watch TV and play video games and stuff. Support us by supporting our sponsors when you order from them online. After C Nutrition, Coffee Method, Rudy Project, and Smash Bros. Queen. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Haley, welcome back. I'm so excited that we are back in action and I'm talking to you again. Alyssa, it's so good to hear your voice. And I want to ask you all about what's going on, but I'm saving those questions because if our listeners are paying attention, I'm sure they are, they will know that you did recently have a huge, huge event. You raced, well, raced yourself and the record books on the Vermont Long Trail. And I don't want to put out too many spoilers because we're going to, I am going to interview you and ask all about your record attempt, your days out on the trail and what happened and what you've been doing since then. So I'm saving all those questions, but you can ask me what's going on. (laughs) That's fine. So I am actually very interested in what you've been doing. And I, has any of your time off included watching some of the racing that's been going on? Well, Alyssa, so the reason I have some time off is because I did race Ironman Maastricht or Maastricht. I'm not sure the exact pronunciation there, even after being in the city a couple of weeks ago while you were just coming off the trail. And it was my first time racing in Europe. It was a women's only pro race. I had an excellent swim and bike and first 10 kilometers or 10 miles. I'm not sure of the run. (laughs) And then I had a world-class blow up that, uh, everyone, if you would like to go watch on Facebook live, you can actually see that because the coverage was apparently amazing. It was Haley. I have to say I woke up that Sunday morning and the European races are timed perfectly for us East coasters. And so, you know, I pull up Facebook and it's like, tune into Ironman live to watch the Ironman. And I was like, Oh, this is perfect. So Rachel Joyce and Michael Lovato were commenting And it was, it was heartbreaking to watch the run because I wish I had been tuned in from to be seeing you leading and everything that went along before the run. But it, my heart went out to you. And, but at the same time, Haley, I have to say it was really kind of nice to feel like I was alongside you trying to get some sort of support to you in those moments. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. But yes, yeah, spoiler alert. I, I had a very, very tough run, just kind of blew up uh, somewhere in the middle there. But and yeah, it was hard. But the crowd support was actually really good, like even there in in the Netherlands. And I can still only say really good things about the course. And, you know, it was a very different course than anything I've raced on. And it was, you know, a beautiful, like very European city. I'm really proud of myself for for one, getting to the race because traveling to Europe by yourself, navigating the train system from Amsterdam to Maastricht and just all of those, I think are life skills that 
I'll use in other places other than Ironman. So, um, I'm proud of myself for that. And I'm definitely proud of myself for my swim and my bike. I think as someone who rides mostly indoors (laughs) on, um, a European bike course was probably not my forte. And I, I think I handled it so well. And I think we actually have a mailbag question specifically about that. So I'll, I'll save my, my further, uh, like, uh, descriptions of the bike course till later, but it was, you know, I think I'm really, really proud of that day and how good I felt in those first 10 miles of the run. Like it was, I felt really, really good. And so there's a lot of good takeaways too. And now it's just, okay, figuring out what went wrong. How do I learn from this? We, you know, you mentioned other races. That was one of the final races for Kona qualification and I did not make it. And I think, you know, it's one of those things I could be really sad about. And I have been sad because I think you can feel those feelings, but I, um, I take a lot of, of wisdom from our previous guest from that we had before the break, Jennifer Farr Davis, who for anyone who hasn't listened to that interview, I highly recommend it because she is not only, you know, a record setting runner and trail hiker or, and she's also an author and she just has this really good perspective. And in her book, Pursuit of Endurance, which we previewed, she talks about failure and how failure is kind of this, you know, the essence of endurance and how, you know, anytime you're, you're trying to like work toward endurance and like keeping yourself going, you're going to have failures. So I'm trying to like really take her words to heart and be like, yeah, this was a failure, but that's okay. The big thing is you have to keep going past that. And I do have a, some fun plans in the works for the fall. So it's not like I'm going to be sitting around eating chocolate, though I will probably sit around and eat chocolate because I do that anyway. <laughs> That's celebration and failure. You just, you know, chocolate's good for everything. Well, Haley, it's nice to hear you say kind of that. And that's very inspiring for myself and I'm sure for some of our listeners because I think in a lot of our eyes, you're someone who has succeeded at Kona before. And, you know, it's, I think, an interesting year to see someone like yourself who I quite honestly, I, you know, elevate you to a status sometimes of, oh, Haley should be a shoe in at this point. And I think it's important for our listeners, especially as you guys learn more about how the female pro system is working for Kona and what the pros are putting into the seasons and working towards really hard season after season that these things aren't guaranteed for us. And, you know, to see someone like you, Haley, work so hard and, be just so close, you know, and not get it. It is, it's heartbreaking and it's, you know, but it, it's also so inspiring to hear you that you're kind of chomping at the bit again, still for more. And, you know, you will take this and learn from it and use that towards your next race and everything else to come. And I just, I think it's important for people to realize that failure is a huge, huge part of professional sports <laughs> and, and what we're doing. It's, it's really hard and it's not the end of the world. It doesn't mean that your career's over, you know, and it doesn't have to be the end. It's just, it's another stepping block in your career. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when, when I talk to people, there's still so many people who don't realize that women have, don't have equal slots compared to men in Kona, that women still only have 35 slots and that men have 50. And so when we're talking about this August qualifying, there were seven women who will get slots in August and 10 men. And so if I, if, you know, we were talking about the men's field, I would be in for Kona. And so I think maybe this can help like put a face with that. Like who, who are the women who are not making it? It's the Angela Nath is not, um, Camilla Lindholm, myself. And, um, I'm not sure exactly who rolled out after that, but I mean, that's who it is. That's who's not going to Kona because of the inequality. And I'm not saying this because 
like I feel like I deserve to go to Kona or, you know, this year it's mostly, it's for the future, right? I'm going to be totally just fine. You know, I'm going to be just fine, but I would like to think that in the future, you know, the little girl who's out there right now can look at this and be like, Hey, it's equal. I would go, you know, and it, cause I think that that's still a problem in our sport. So, you know, maybe the right person will hear this and it sticks with them. And then they realize, you know, we are still fighting for that. And speaking of that August kind of qualification and the bubble of the Kona. So I watched the coverage of Ironman Mount Tremblant, which is a race I actually haven't been to, but it was, it looked super exciting. Once again, I was able to tune in just on Facebook. They're doing like Ironman now on Facebook and you can broadcast it right to your TV. So it's kind of now a little routine that when I'm able to do it, I put it on and it's really nice to have Ironman on all day in the background. It's super fun when they catch the exciting moments and things like that. Um, and so we were able to watch kind of the, the women who were fighting for those last of the Kona points and fighting for those last few spots go to Tremblant and race. And Haley, it was a super exciting race until the end. Lauren Brandon, it was also really funny. I have to say this. If you can go onto the coverage and watch Lauren Brandon swim and she, I think they got a three minute gap. So the men started three minutes back. The women started and you're just watching Lauren by herself swim up. She catches the men. And Haley, she caught this pack of Lionel Sanders, Jeff Simons, and I don't remember the European pro. I think that was the leading, that little pack of three. And she comes up alongside them. And you see Jeff look up and see another swimmer going faster. And Haley, you just see him break off and try and stick on Lauren's feet. And she drops him so fast. It was awesome. And we're just watching this all unfold. And so she drops him, he like scoots back over to the pack. And then Lionel sees the same thing. And he's like, Oh, I'm gonna get on this person's feet. I don't know if they realized it was Lauren or not. He breaks over and he he stuck on it. I think I think it was Lionel or the other guy. And, you know, within 25 meters, he was dropped too. And Lauren's just, you know, going for it. And so those are the kinds of things that now you can see. And it's I thought it was really fun. And it shows why we need bigger gaps. Well, exactly. <laughs> I feel like that is um, three minutes is obviously not, not enough. enough unless yes. we're going to start making all the pro men have a proficiency in swimming before they can even start. No, Lauren isn't a fantastic swimmer, but I think that is another thing that I think that people have, you know, the pro women have fought for is, is equal starts and three minutes obviously is not enough. Yep. And the coverage again, like we're seeing live coverage out on the motorbikes of the racing unfold. And in the past, historically, there's been a lot of drama sometimes at Ironman races where, you know, there's questions about drafting. There's questions about interference between the age group men into the women's race or the pro men into the women's race. These things, these things are definitely going to get shown more, you know, maybe the camera cuts out at some ideal times, maybe not, but it's inevitable that, you know, people, I think there was anywhere from three and a half to 7,000 people viewing at any time that I was watching. So people are watching and these things are going to start being seen. And hopefully, you know, a lot more of the Ironman racers are starting to see some of this and are asking for the changes that we are to help make the races more fair and keep them as exciting as they can be to watch. I heard you actually got to comment on the video. You can actually comment on the Facebook video. And I heard you chimed in. Yeah. So my comment didn't get highlighted enough with like I would have loved it if mine was one that had the picture also pop up because that would have been lovely but Michael Lovato did after I asked a few times because I was just going to pester them a little bit about it you know and I said the coverage is really great I love hearing you guys announce it was Greg Walsh and Michael Lovato doing commentary but 
In the past, I've tuned in when Dee Dee Griesbauer and Rachel Joyce were the second voice on there. And I thought that was really nice to have the female perspective of that race. So I asked where our female commentator for the day was. And kudos to Michael for addressing the question head on. And he said Dee Dee was on, she was racing in Sweden and Rachel was on vacation with her family in the UK. So they, they were, their females weren't available. So I did point out that there is a laundry list of other female professional athletes, triathletes out there who, you know, you and I, Haley, have enough practice with a microphone. I think we could step in at any time if they really wanted us to. Yes, I'm available. <laughs> I was definitely available this weekend. They never called. Maybe I just need to send my resume in. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep an, our eye on that. But again, it's, it is fun. You can write in, they ask questions, you can respond, they're highlighting things. So a very fun, engaging experience. And I, I do have to give credit where credit is due to Ironman that I think they are trying very hard to make that experience one that people can watch and engage in. Yes. So everyone should continue to tune into those Ironman Now Facebook page and, and follow the, the races because that is, it's, it's just going to help the sport. And Haley, so we will sit tight over the next few weeks and hopefully hear more about your fall racing plans. Um, in the meantime, we did get a lot of mailbag questions coming in over our break, which is amazing. So if people do have questions for Haley and I, you can send them in to ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com and we will answer on the mailbag segment. We're going to start taking a stab at a few each episode here. So we, if yours doesn't get answered, sit tight for the future weeks. We will get after it then. But the first ones we have here, Haley, first is from Bryn, and she wants to know if we have any thoughts on the USAT Age Group National Championship. She's qualified for 2019 in the Olympic distance race, and she's thinking it's fun but hasn't heard too much about it do we think it's worth the trip? Okay, I can take a stab at this one because I have participated in the USAT Age Group National Championship on three separate occasions. Actually, I raced twice in Tuscaloosa, Alabama and once in Burlington, Vermont and um, actually won in Vermont. So I guess I'm a little partial to that one. Although Tuscaloosa was great as well. So I found the race fantastic. I realize it does move. And this past year it was in Cleveland, Ohio. And I believe it will also be in Cleveland for 2019. I think it's it's incredibly well done. I think it's a huge race. It's a great opportunity to race against some of the best age group triathletes in the country over the Olympic distance. I know that in Cleveland, there were some issues with the swim. Um, I believe the swim in Lake Erie had some currents that actually led to the swim being canceled on Sunday. And I am not one that really will fault a race for I think safety is a top priority. So I think that they, you know, they probably handled that the best they could. Hopefully they will make some changes for 2019 where, you know, move the swim to a more sheltered area. Um, I'm sure that they learned from that because it seems like they have learned. I would think one of the reasons that the race left Burlington, Vermont was they didn't have enough hotel rooms. I mean, it was like a 3000 person race and they were just, I remember I was so lucky to get a hotel room. And so that was one of the reasons I think they moved it to Milwaukee after that. So they do move it around. And I think they are listening to people, what people want and what they want out of the race experience. But from my personal experience, from knowing athletes who have raced, coaching athletes who have raced at US age group nationals, most of them have really positive things to say. I agree. So I've actually never raced there, but I always was looking for an excuse to do some longer racing. And so I, I never really, you know, was able to fit that in because I think I was shying away from shorter distance racing, Haley. But 
I will say I have had many athletes go and race and again, positive things generally from the entire event. And I think it's just a really good opportunity to get to race. So, you know, the top people in your age group, you know, it is people take it seriously and people are using it to qualify, I guess, for the, the like, I, like the ITU? world. Yeah. They, yeah. It's like an ITU, like age group worlds, which this year are in the gold coast. I mean, but usually you qualify like the year before so right. I think next year's in Switzerland. Yes. Yes. So um, I know people I don't this know, year, 2019 will be qualified. I'm not sure where the world championships in 2020 are, but are they've been announced, but yes, yeah, so you do get a chance to qualify for that, which is a cool yes. thing if you're interested in that. So it's a fun way again, to travel a little bit, you know, start stepping up your game and maybe getting to race people who are a little bit more competitive than you're finding in your region or something like that. And, you know, why not see how you compare against that and just go have fun. I know also they do the Olympic one day, the sprint the next, so you could double up, which is you know, a fun way really to do it. really popular. I think so. Yeah. Like, people seem to want to get more people do the double. Yeah. So I think it's like bang for your buck, right? Why not? Yeah, you're there. And it's like, then it is, it turns into like a more of a long endurance weekend. I kind of like doing just one, what felt like I can't call Olympic distance short. (laughs) That was plenty long for me. (laughs) But um, no, I mean, that's a cool, I think that's cool how that's kind of has started to be a trend where people do both. Yeah. So Bryn, I think that means we think you should go and tell us all about it next year in 2019. And Haley, we have another mailbag question. This is the one you alluded to earlier. So this is from... I looked in the mailbag ahead of time. (laughs) (laughs) This is from Jennifer. And she screenshotted from Angela Nath's Insta story, which said, it's official. And then she made the little emojis for the American flag and the Canadian flag. So both of us are dragged into this. (laughs) We are wimps on... The cycling, she used the cycling emoji, front for races. Racing in Europe is legit. Nothing easy here. Iron Man must strict. Technical, crazy, and intense. Can't wait. Cyclists, uh, mountain cycle emoji, heart emoji. <laughs> I think that translates to she was happy about it. Um, the bike course was technical and challenging in Maastricht. I don't think Americans and Canadians are wimps at all. I will not, I would not say that at all. I have raced on plenty of both American and Canadian courses. And I will tell you, some of those courses are extremely hard. The difference in Europe is, well, one, the course was completely closed, which I really appreciated um, more than anything. The roads are very, very narrow. So I think that if it hadn't been closed, there would be no way to actually even do the race. And the signage on the course, yes, it was technical. And yes, it probably took a route that you would not see for liability reasons in the United States. Um, I think they, they had really good signage kind of that told you like, this is steep, slow down, or there's a turn at the bottom of this slow down, because sometimes it would be like a turn. And then it's like a, really sharp 90 degree turn with a guardrail that I don't think you would see that in a North American Ironman just because it it is a little bit dangerous or, I mean, you'd have to have really, really good signage. Um, luckily I rode pretty much all by myself. So I was able to hit the brakes whenever I wanted to. Um, I rode cautiously again, like I said, I train mostly indoors. So was it the best course for me? Uh, maybe not, but I did really enjoy it. It was not boring at all. It was really fun. I mean, you had a bunch of different road surfaces. You had some hills, nothing crazy. I think you could get hillier in U.S. or Canada. The only thing I will say that you did see that you would never, ever see in the U.S. or Canada, I believe, are these things called bike bridges. 
And they basically built a bridge over a road so that it wouldn't impede traffic so that cars could still go over underneath. And the bridge was made of scaffolding and particle board. And so it was high. I mean, it's high enough that traffic was flowing normally underneath and it was not the sturdiest structure. And this, there were two of them in each loop. And the second one did have a turn in the middle of it and then descended into a 90 degree turn. Again, luckily I was by myself. Both times I went over him, I was able to go very, very slow. Luckily it did not rain because I think they were dangerous. Um, I know I spoke to Von Van Vlerken afterwards and she did say that she talked to the race director and she even felt, even being a European pro, that they weren't really acceptable. So I don't think that's going to stay there. So I would say, encourage people, yes, if you want like a different kind of bike course, go do it. It's just... It wasn't harder. It was just different. I mean, you can look at my time. I've definitely ridden a slower time on, I think I rode 515 and I've definitely ridden a slower time probably on a North American course, but it was mentally really engaging and that was really fun. And for anyone who, you know, has really thought about going to race a European race and now they're hearing this and they're super nervous or anything, because I had kind of a similar experience when I raced in the UK. I just found it, you know, I didn't feel like it was dangerous. I just felt like it was a different style. Like the infrastructure of their roads is clearly different. Well, one there, I, I was riding on the left side, which is always tricky, but just the curvy and the tall bushes and you, you know, you're not, you're not trained to be looking the right way, that kind of thing. It, was, it just felt very different. And I can see how it makes you a little uneasy if you're not accustomed to those types of roads. But I will say there's a pretty simple solution that I would tell you on, and that's maybe consider taking a road bike out there, right? You can put clip on yeah. arrow bars take your road bike, you have a lot more control, you, you know, when a course, if it is that technical and that hilly, like, you know, the time savings versus being just comfortable on your bike is going to be pretty minimal. And then you also have a nice road bike, you could do like a cycling adventure in Europe afterwards. So I did say I talked to some of the I went to the women for try breakfast afterwards. And I talked to some of the age group women, I asked them because I was like, what was it like to go through some of those sections like with other people? And they actually said that the course was, you know, the field was actually so spread out that they were by themselves as well. So maybe that could be a, you know, a feature that when you have all these different things, like you're actually not as bunched up. So I definitely, yeah, I won't, we're not wimps. You know, it's like, it's like saying a flat course is easier. It's not, you just go faster, right? You still have to go really hard and go fast. Like a half isn't that much easier than a full, you know, it's like, they're just different. And so that's kind of what I would say. It's just different. All right, Haley. Well, I think that wraps up our mailbag for now. And we're going to take a little break. Listeners will get reunited with our sponsors. And then when we come back, you're going to get to listen to Haley and I talk more about what I have been doing really focused on for the past nine months or so now that I just finished up last month. And that was my long trail adventure in Vermont. Support us by supporting our sponsors when you order from them online. After Sea Nutrition, Coffee Method, Rudy Project, and Smash Fest Queen. All right, folks, we are back. And I am here about to interview Alyssa Gadeski, my co-host. It's a little bit of a non-traditional interview this week. But in case you didn't, you haven't been listening for the last couple of months, Alyssa has been training and really focused on setting the fastest known time, also known as an FKT, on the long trail in Vermont. So before I bring Alyssa on, I will tell you the long trail is a 273-mile trail from the Vermont-Canada border 
then it runs south to the border between Vermont and Massachusetts. And it is known for being extremely hard, extremely technical. I am going to ask Alyssa all about it, so I'm not going to spoil too much. And so uh, let's bring Alyssa in so we can talk a little bit more about it. Alyssa, welcome to Iron Women. Hi, Haley. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. Um, Okay, before we get into this, I have to ask because if anyone was tracking you online, you did have a fantastic tracker. If anyone saw the videos... Um, I believe you can still go onto your Facebook page and see the videos that Sarah posted, but you were wearing a, you know, a shirt and the website was, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of your project's name. You said it was German. Is it Von Deln? It's so, W-A-S-E-L-N? You're doing, we decided, well, I decided to just fully go full American on it and call it Wandlin because it is Wandlin, I guess, like in German, but we all felt so silly saying that. So we just call it Wandling. Wandelin, and then it became kind of a verb as we were using it during the whole run as well. So now you can always be like wandling in around if you are doing something that is, you know, an adventure to you or something new and exciting, then it, it can be used however you want. It can be pronounced anyway. So where did you come up with wandelin? And is this your trail name? Is it the name of your project? Is this an ongoing, you know, is it a verb? <laughs> It, it, it so it means it's a German word and it means it's it can be a noun or a verb. It means to change. Um, it also can mean to transform. It can also can mean to wander and stroll. So as I was back last fall thinking about doing this and taking on this project, I was talking to uh, Michelle actually from Smash. She's one of the you know geniuses behind the Smash Fest Queen line, and we were talking about this project as something that could eventually encompass a lot more of kind of my own self and the adventures that I want to have with the rest of my career and things like that. So I searched, you know, I wasn't totally caught up that I had to do this, but I was looking online and trying to figure out kind of a name for the whole, you know, project and things like that. And I stumbled upon in one of the many hours (laughs) digging through the internet, the word wandlin and it just jumped out to me right away. I liked how it looked, you know, as silly as that sounds. I think it really just stuck out to me in that sense. And then just that meaning of strolling and wandering and transforming and changing. I was like, this will hopefully, you know, be what the long trail project is about. But then also, you know, I always have my own bucket list of things that I want to accomplish in my career and well, life for that matter. And so I started to build it as kind of its own little entity to help me kind of keep track of those adventures and give them each a little life when I take them on. And it was just easy too, because then for, you know, as we were going and promoting it and telling people what it's about, you know, it didn't get lost on kind of my website, which obviously is quite triathlon related and things like that. It had its own focus just for the long trail on projectwandelin.com. And then I could put the tracking for the whole um, few days I was running on that as well. Okay. And so you mentioned triathlon and I know you as a triathlete, you do co-host the iron women podcast. Why go for this, you know, trail multi-day trail record and why do it on the long trail? So Haley, as you know, it can be a little like monotonous, right? As a professional triathlete, it's a lot of swim, bike and run. And For myself, because I always really enjoy racing and I really have enjoyed racing iron distance stuff, I was just getting, you know, I don't want to even use the word burnt out because I was still enjoying racing, 
but I could just tell I wasn't approaching my Ironman racing with just the excitement that, you know, I really wanted to and kind of the competitiveness that I really wanted to, because I had done as of the end of last season, I hit, you know, 29 Ironmans. And so I had, you know, and one of those was that time I went to Taiwan, my bike didn't arrive. And like, to be honest, that didn't even like throw me for too much of a loop. Like I just raced on a borrowed bike and I did okay. And I felt like looking at my career so far, I had accomplished some really great things, but I also was kind of stuck in this rut. And if you look at my Ironman career, I have a lot of fourth places. (laughs) And to me, you know, I would love to get in that top three and onto that podium one day, but I didn't feel like the way I was approaching my training and racing was matching up to how it should for someone who wants to race at the level of achieving that top three spots, right? So I just had to look at myself and, and figure out what was wrong and, you know, what to kind of do. And so I'm coached by Hillary Biscay. And one of the things she always encourages from athletes is to race what you're excited about. And so I started to really think about that. And I realized that what was exciting to me was to get back on the trails. My, I actually started endurance sports with ultra running. And so the exciting thing to me was kind of thinking of some trail adventures or some trail running races and things like that. And then as I was brainstorming, I kind of was like, there's this other item that's been on my bucket list. And that is to kind of go check out Vermont's long trail. And I had watched Finding Traction, which is the documentary that shows Nikki Kimball's attempt. And it had stuck in my brain for years that this is something I wanted to go after. And it was something that I really thought I could, I could do, I could better that record. And so, you know, I just, I asked her like, you know, it was, she knew that that had been something I wanted to do. And we had always written it off Haley as something I would do when I was quote retired from Ironman. Right. And that would be something I would do when I was done racing and we could just use my endurance body for these trail adventures and things like that. And I started to look at it and I just realized that maybe doing it while I was younger was actually going to be advantageous. And it just seemed like the right thing to help me kind of ignite the spark and the excitement back into my racing. Okay. And why the long trail? I mean, you don't live in Vermont. I don't think you've ever lived in Vermont. (laughs) What drew you to Vermont? (laughs) So I think, you know, a little bit of, I don't know if naivety or like ignorance, you know, like I didn't I don't know too much. I'm still learning constantly about all the trails that are out there and all the super cool places to to go. And quite honestly, the long trail stuck out to me because I love East Coast trails. You know, I'm I learned to run on the trails on the East Coast and they are pretty different. So East Coast trails are known for being a little bit rockier and more technical, more roots, just more like short and steep up and downs. We have no massive, you know, elevation mountains out here like the the West Coast does or or, um, you know, Colorado and stuff like that. But so it's very different. And I have basically grown up in my trail running life with those trails. And I love that. And I think my I'm definitely, you know, my strengths on the trails suit that. So, you know, my my thought process was limited to the two I really know the most about, which is the Appalachian Trail and then the Long Trail. And the Long Trail being much shorter in the grand scheme of things than the Appalachian Trail. It's, you know, for the 273 miles seemed like a distance I could wrap my head around to take on that project. So, so yeah, I just, I, I picked it and I said, all right, let's start to, to check this out. Okay. And when we talk about this record that you set, 
It was five days, two hours and 37 minutes. And you set the women's supported record on the long trail. So spoiler alert, I just told everyone you did it. Hopefully they followed along and you knew they knew. But can we talk about the history of this record and why it was important to go after the record? I have I-, I can put you on the spot and ask you to list out the names, but you probably know them. So I'll-, I'll-, I'll chime in if you don't have any of the numbers in front of you. But tell us about the previous record holders and why why it was important to like put your name with them. So I actually, I, I definitely don't know all the stats here, but, you know, looking at the long trail, there is a pretty good history of people who have, you know, raced it for a record attempt. And so it definitely, you know, Warren Doyle is a name and he is known for his time on the Appalachian Trail as well as kind of the Vermont Long Trail and that kind of thing. And he, so we should also tell people, I guess, that there's different ways you can approach an FKT. And so you can do unsupported, which basically means you start and finish with all of your supplies, all of your food. The only thing you're really allowed to like add to your supplies is water that you get from natural sources like along the way. Then there is supported uh, or self-supported. And that means that you can go and get like more supplies and other things you might need, but you have to get yourself to each of those, you know, the store to buy new food. Or if you can walk to a hotel, then you could, you know, go off trail and sleep on the ho- in the hotel, that kind of thing. And, but it just has to be of your own power. You could like mail yourself boxes and have resupplies come in that way. And then there's supported, which usually means you have a crew of some sort or people meeting you along the way to help you with that resupply. They can help you with pacing. They can, you can get in a car and drive somewhere else as long as you get back on the trail where you left it and that's supported. So most trail history starts with unsupported, which is, you know, Warren Doyle had an unsupported record, I think around eight days on the long trail. And then now it's held by Travis Wildebauer, which is about six days. The self-supported female record I know is held by Jennifer Farr Davis, who we interviewed in our last episode before our break. And that's about seven days, maybe almost eight high sevens. 17 days, 15 hours. Good job. (laughs) And then for the supported though, since I guess the 90s, I know the record has changed hands about six times, I believe. And... The current record holder is Jonathan Basham with a time of four days, 12 hours, and I'm not sure the minute. 46, 46 minutes. minutes. And then he beat, let's see, did he beat Cave Dog's time? I ten, believe that is, the, yeah. <laughs> I don't have that one right in front of me, but if I believe that Cave Dog sounds in right. This, you can look up Cave Dog's like FKT reports. He names all of his crew after dogs, like in the, I forget if he calls it like the dog pound or the dog kennel or something. And it's, it's very interesting stuff. So there's that. And then let's see, Sam Swisher, I think had a record, Courtney Campbell. He said it in 1997. Sam Swisher, I believe was like, he was like the original supported record in 1997. So this hasn't even been around that long. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's so fascinating to me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, but these are like big names, right? We have, I mean, you mentioned, and then you mentioned Nikki Kimball. Yes. And so then until 2012, there hadn't been a female supported attempt. Um, so Jennifer Farr Davis was kind of in that placeholder at that point, holding the female record both for self-supported and supported at that point, just because another female hadn't come in to try and do a fully supported attempt. So when Nikki came in and her goal, she realized all of that. And so she put the bar at trying to best the men's supported time that was Jonathan Basham still at that time. So that's kind of where, you know, it's been a very short history on the long trail for women, I guess. But 
the men have been going after it for quite a while and there hasn't been too much change in that from record to record. Like I think the last time that record fell, it was less than an hour. So, um, it's definitely, you know, the bar is set pretty high there and Nikki coming in and kind of gave it a little bit of a rebirth because there haven't been many record attempts ported in the last few years. Okay. So we can, we can say Jonathan Basham, you know, four days, 12 hours, like you mentioned, Nikki Kimball's previous supported women's supported record of five days, seven hours and 42 minutes. And then you come in and best Nikki's record by, you know, more than five hours at five days, two hours, 37 minutes. That has to make you feel pretty good. I mean, you're pretty far up there even on the all time record. Yeah. So, you know, as I went along, I definitely, there was, so if you listen to the interview with Jennifer Farr Davis, she definitely makes, throws the challenge out at me to go after the men's record. And you know, Haley, we talked about it a little bit after that. And it, I had said, it's definitely on my mind. And one of the things when you, that you do when you go after something like an FKT, especially having, you know, those, that record four days, 12 hours, wasn't all that much faster than what I thought when I would write down my projections for myself of what I could do. You know, I thought it was in the realm of possibility. So it was definitely, I used that as a, a benchmark. And I can say that, you know, until... Day three, I was, you know, mile for mile with that record pace. And so that's something that I think we can take away from it. You know, I think Nikki wasn't far off by thinking that record's beatable. I think that I still believe that record is beatable. And it feels good to have made a little dent in, you know, the times between them. But after that four days, 12 hour mark really slipped away and I knew it wasn't going to happen, I absolutely was using you know, the other record times, because those guys are definitely still watching these things, Haley. And um, David Horton, who had set a record, and it was four days, 22 hours, I think, you know, he actually sent me a note afterwards that he was watching, and he was super happy that I didn't beat his record. And if you had asked me, you know, on day four, what I was doing, I was telling you, I was trying to keep going, because I wanted to beat David Horton's record at that point. So it's a fun game that you can play. And like anything, you know, you, you might lose that top end goal, but it was fun to have those other little benchmarks along the way to be chasing. Yes. And I should throw a, like a shout out there to like, what is fastest known times.com. If anyone wants to look at these, I mean, they're fascinating and they do list like the history of the record, which I think I really appreciate that they do that because I think it is fascinating to see how it's changed um, changed hands. And it is when someone beats it by just one hour and just, I mean, that's incredible. So I think it's cool to see, you know, your name being added to that list of really incredible people, but back to the interview. So we're talking about this 273 mile trail from the Canadian border down to the Massachusetts border, the entire length of the state of Vermont. You went from North to South. Um, was this you know, direction, a strategy? Is this what the previous record holders had also done? I mean, does anyone go south to north? It's interesting. A lot of through hikers choose that are doing it kind of at a, you know, slower pace, I guess, because they're through hiking, go northbound because the southern hundred miles of the long trail is known to be quote easier. You know, it's certainly not easy, but it is, there's le- the high peaks are all in the northern most, you know, 100, 150 miles. And the southern part just has less exposed peaks. It's less of the like true high mountains. And so for through hikers, it's really nice because it kind of gives them like a hundred mile warm up to get into the really technical stuff and get their hiking legs under them, break in their shoes, break in their equipment, all that sort of thing before some of the stuff they can face when 
they are, you know, doing the higher elevation things and some of the more technical climbs towards the northern part. For going after an FKT, you almost want to take a different approach. You want to get the harder stuff and the higher elevation and the more, you know, technical kind of longer climbs out of the way when your legs are a little bit fresher and when you have your wits more value and you're not subject to that like sleep deprivation side of things and everything else. So everyone who's gone for an FKT has gone southbound. Um, There has never been a northbound attempt. And so, and I think it's just, it's for that reason, because you're, you try to get through that hard stuff in the hopes that your legs are still fresh enough to, to make those last hundred miles somewhat runnable. Okay. And why did you decide to go for a supported attempt? You already kind of described the three different types. So you did have a crew. So why did you decide to have a crew and how did you go about, you know, picking your crew? What was their division of duties? Did you ever run by yourself or were you always with someone? So I did support it because Haley, I'm super comfortable going out and running for you know, 10 or 20 miles on the trails, I'm happy to leave a note, say where I'm going, and I'll go on a new trail or try something new. I'm totally comfortable. But in terms of spending five days out in the wilderness on my own, not so comfortable. You know, I've learned a lot through this experience. And I really want to keep pushing myself in that way to get more comfortable, because I think it's amazing. But like what you can, the confidence you can gain from like spending the night in the woods by yourself, you know, that kind of thing. And, but I just wasn't there and I didn't have, there's a lot of different gear that could go into needing to cook for yourself on the trail and needing to sleep, you know, carry that stuff. All of that had just was a realm I didn't know anything about yet. And so I wanted to do the supported with a crew that could help me and be there for me and make my duties more like what I'm used to, right? Which is going out every day and just running on trails. So that was kind of my, my sense of it. And then I did, I had a crew of, it was about, it grew to about 15, 16 people at some points, about 10 people was kind of that core group that did the whole week adventure. And I picked them. I'm really lucky. So obviously being a professional triathlete, a lot of my friends are as well. And that gives me the luxury of having friends who have kind of flexible jobs, right? So I had other people who necessarily aren't subject to corporate America where they have to really plan for vacation time. So that helped me also have a really great, you know, time to pick my crew because we didn't have to worry about those constraints as much. So I picked, so, you know, my first pick was, uh, my boyfriend, Matt. And so he has been a huge help to me and poor guy. He probably had no idea what he was getting into when he agreed to help me because it definitely did become this like multi month long planning adventure. And when he realized he was kind of the crew captain by default, um, a lot of planning duties fell on him. And so really in the months like leading up to it, it was him and I doing a lot of the planning. And I don't even know, you know, if this is where I should really begin to kind of talk about that, we can talk about that maybe next, but we did a lot of the prep stuff, Matt and I together. And then, you know, I would say his main duty during the run was to be a pacer and then also help keep everyone else organized because pretty much everyone else, you know, I had sent some emails prior to the run out, but pretty much everyone else was coming in about 24 hours before I was starting the trail. And so it gave them very minimal time to learn like what they were going to be doing, where they were going to be, who was doing what, how to do things, all of that stuff. So he was there to kind of be helpful with that one while I was running. And then we had a 
few other people come in with the objective of them being a pacer as their main job because, yes, I wanted someone with me for every single mile if that was going to be possible. And for a couple reasons, you know, one, the trail's really well marked, but there are sections where it just gets a little confusing and it's kind of easy to second guess yourself, especially if you hit that section at night. And it's just always nice to have someone else to bounce that like, we're on the right trail, right? Question off of. Also just safety, especially as I kept going, it was more and more important that I had someone with me to keep me moving, you know, forwards and not side to side as I was getting sleepier and sleepier. They also were basically, you know, a pack mule for me. And they were carrying the heavy pack of all the food and nutrition and hydration that not only me, but they would also need to be getting through that segment so that I could carry the absolute least amount that I had to, because every single ounce kind of wears on you when you're doing over 50 miles a day for multiple days on end. So the pacers had their work cut out for them. And I will say, you know, my original dream when I was planning this was an all-female crew. I had this whole thing, you know, this whole dream of like, I'm going to get my best girlfriends and we're, they're going to be the best crew ever. They're going to have so much fun and they're going to run with me and we're going to be able to do this. But that just unfortunately wasn't realistic given that I want to, well, I, you have to do it in the summer because of Vermont weather. And so to, you know, a, a lot of my friends, it's great that they might not have to go into corporate jobs, but they also have their own seasons to be thinking about and their own training for various things. So asking them to be in the shape they would need to be in to really cover the pacing duties for the entire time. Just, it wasn't realistic, especially carrying, you know, a 15 pound pack on their back. So we, you know, pulled in some men to be pacing help. One was Matt's college friend, Will. Hillary's husband, Mike, was a big pacer help. Emily Cox came in. She was great with the pacing. She definitely, you know, put training in for that, which I really appreciated and was able to do that. And then my friend Carly, who I knew from my Baltimore running days, she came up and was helpful with the pacing. Um, and then I also had a Hillary. I had my Leslie Miller, my fellow pro. Sarah obviously was out there. She was helping with the pacing duties towards the end. I think everyone had to help with some sort of pacing or bring Alyssa food mission towards the end. And I know I'm missing some people now that I'm like on the spot. I should have written it out to think about it. So but it, it definitely, there are some pros, pros and minuses to having really fit friends, right? Right. Um, you know, like you do, you need these fit friends who can, you know, with flexible schedules who can go out there and who can do this. And then, but then it is those kind of people are also doing their own things. So it kind of was a perfect thing, but I, I love hearing the, like, you know, these names from triathlon that we know of the Mike Twelsick, the Hillary Biscay, the like Leslie Millers, um, Emily Cox. I mean, it's so cool that they're out there supporting you. It was. And so then we had the other, you know, contingent that we had out there. So Michelle, which is Hillary's business partner in Smash. So Michelle like happened to grow up with Kurt, who now lives in Vermont. And so the whole time I was in Vermont, Kurt was super helpful. And Kurt was helpful to me and that he he was the guy that hiked in my sleeping stuff on night one to the shelter and you know he also helped just have another car out there and help them shuttle some things during that time and then since Michelle was coming out and she was going to have kind of this like mini reunion because she went to high school with Kurt they also had their friend whose name is also Alyssa come up and so she you know had never met me in person but she is on the smash team at least so I think she you know was totally into being teammates on this even without meeting me she came up without having met me and jumped in 
you know, immediately to help with the cooking and everything else that was going on at the the crew stops along the way. So it really did like when I, my mind is just always blown when I think about all of the moving pieces and all of the people who came in at various times to help out and to like, you know, I had my athlete Brianna and her husband happened to be in Vermont for a night. They came in and they paced almost, you know, 20 miles for, so that my crew could actually have a break. And that like was a huge, you know, it was also really nice to see fresh faces. So it's very obviously not a solo endeavor. (laughs) Um, even though you might be out there, it sounds like there were massive, I mean, you have a massive amount of appreciation for the people who helped. And it is a cool thing about the endurance, you know, sports community that I think, you know, that that's kind of my big takeaway from that. So I do want to ask though, when you're on day one, I think it was around 4 a.m. that you are starting there on the, you know, Canada-Vermont border. What is going through your head? I was panicking a little, to tell you the truth, because, Haley, it was pouring down rain. And the forecast was pretty bad for the next 48 hours. Like, it just did not look promising. And one of the things you always hear from people who have set FKTs is, you have to be flexible with your start date. That's, like, one of the keys to move it for weather, right? And I mean, just like clockwork the night before the skies just opened up and everything was going to be super wet. Everything was going to be super muddy. And I mean, we got out of the car, you have to hike a mile and a half or so up to the starting point and just buckets of rain on us. And so I was excited and there was a ton of adrenaline. I was so excited to finally get this thing going because I just didn't want to sit and think about it anymore. But I was also definitely panicked of like, am I making a wrong choice here by pushing this off now, but I had to do my best to put that out of my head because I didn't have a choice. You know, like I had my crew when I had my crew and it was going to, I knew it was going to take every single one of them to make this a success. So we just had to try and hope. And luckily, you know, the forecast, it was still pretty bad (laughs) for those first couple days, but you know, we did it anyway. And so it didn't matter, which, which was good. Can you give us like a mileage breakdown per day over the four days? I mean, I know you, you mentioned the terrain changes and you had the weather issues and, and I'm also curious, like was, you know, when you talk about your plan, the method that you and Matt came up with, did you stick to that original plan? And like, how do you tell your crew if you're running ahead or you're running behind so that it makes sure that they're at the right place at the right time? And then finally, I'm batching all the questions at you here. In relationship to the record, when you mentioned, you know, falling off the men's record after day three, I mean, were the men's and women's records very similar for the first three days? Like, because I think on when I'm watching on Instagram, it's like, oh, she's five minutes ahead of the record. I mean, like, did you know where you were on relationship to the record? And is that five minutes ahead of the men's record or the women's record? Or like, can you please answer all the questions? (laughs) (laughs) So the mileage first. So that was part of why I went out there for two months ahead of time. So I actually had spent a week in Vermont last October when Hillary and I decided, yes, we were going to, you know, investigate this project a little further. And I had this brilliant idea. I was like, it's my off season. I get a bit of a break. I would love to just take a mental break and run some trails. I'm going to bring my mom and Ramona up to Vermont and I'm going to run about a hundred miles of the long trail to scope it out. And we'll make a plan after that. And Haley, after day one, where I spent seven and a half hours attempting to run 20 miles on the long trail, I couldn't walk anymore. I felt more sore than I had in after any races. And I sent Hillary a message that said, I'll finish this week as best I can, but we're going to have to discuss this. (laughs) And 
I did not get through 100 miles that week. I got through about 70. And it was so hard for me and so challenging that I was like, what? I was like, I can't do this. This is insane. This record is actually way too hard. And then so I called Hillary to break that news to her. And she heard me talking and heard me out and said, it sounds like like you still want to do this, but you're just thinking you might not break the record. And I was like, well, yeah, (laughs) she's like, well, if the fear of not breaking the record is what's holding you back, she was like, no, we're still doing this. Like the fear of failure should not keep you from doing something if you really want to go and try this, you know, on your own. And I said, you know, I really did. Like I, it was like, the thing I compare it to is I love to online shop Haley. And so when you get something in your head, right. And you just think of that thing that like, you know, that new kit you want and you're like, keep putting it in your cart and then you close the tab and you put it away. You know, I knew if I didn't purchase the long trail project, it was going to stick in my head and haunt me for days and days and days and weeks and weeks. And probably, you know, for probably the rest of my life, if I didn't take this chance. So I said she was right. And I said, you know, I kind of like, I felt like this embarrassment because I was like, well, I don't want to embarrass my coach. I don't want to embarrass my team. You know, like, what if I don't make it? What if I'm not even close? And she was like, you're silly. We're doing this. This is going to be so much fun. I'm so excited. So I was like, okay, like if I'm doing it, I need to respect this because clearly it's way bigger than I thought it was going to be. So I need to actually move up there and train on the trail and like really get to know it, get my trail karma going, really try and have any advantage I can possibly give myself. So that is how I decided to go out in June. And then I basically had about seven weeks, about six weeks or so really of like full on training time in Vermont, in which Hillary would basically give me my training schedule. And then I would sit down with the map of all the segments and map and like match up to the training schedule where I could fit in the training of each segment so that eventually I would just run as much of the trail as I possibly could. And that involved a lot of things like having taxis and having the taxis meet them at, meet me at my car so they could shuttle me to a different point so I could do point-to-point long runs and things like that. And I really was just super committed to that, which made a huge difference for our planning because then I had data for all but 30 or so, 20 or 30 miles of the trail going into the start. And when I trained on it, you know, I definitely was pushing myself here and there more than I figured I would be on day four of the attempt, right? But I knew it wouldn't be too far off what I could do. And so it gave us some ballpark times of the paces and how fast a section was, how technical it was and things like that. So we took all of that into the spreadsheet extravaganza. Thank goodness Matt is good at spreadsheets. And we like graded each segment on difficulty and, you know, gave each of that kind of an assigned pace anywhere from like two miles an hour to just over three miles an hour. And if you're going above three miles an hour on the long trail, you are absolutely blazing. So that was like the, the fast pace, I think was like 3.2. And from that, we were able to use that as our, you know, this is what we think I'm going to be able to run. And we figured, especially for the first two days before I get too tired, it would be, it should be barring no super crazy weather or anything like that, pretty spot on. So with that, We had a binder that became like our little Wandlin Bible of projected times and it had all the directions and things like that in it. And so the crew dropped us at the start. And then from there, we just had the timeline in the binder of like, 
when I get to checkpoint A, when I get to checkpoint B. And so they could drive ahead and get things set up as, you know, best they can and just, you know, hurry up and wait basically is the name of the game as a crew. You hurry up so you don't miss me, but then you end up doing a lot of waiting because you, you know, you want to get there early. And that worked out really well. I think we were all a little like definitely pleasantly surprised, but surprised that we were as close to what, I mean, the first checkpoint, I was a minute ahead. So it was like spot on, you know, the second one, I think I was five minutes ahead. So I was and five minutes ahead of like, five minutes of ahead of my own projection. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that at that point, when we did that, we were projecting, you know, we, we basically went blindly through all the segments and said, based on what I've been training and how hard we think these sec- sections are, we think that I would do four days and 20 hours. That was our projection with those paces. And so then of course we developed some other columns. One was JB column, Jonathan Basham's pacing. And then one was the Nikki column, which had her pacing. So I probably watched Finding Traction about 10 times and took a lot of notes. And they don't give a ton of clues, but what they gave through that movie, I wrote down, we put into the spreadsheet about what time she was where. So we could kind of estimate that, where she slept, all those sorts of things. That was all in there. Same with JB's. His is like, he did not do a documentary. He barely did a report as most as I could find. It was like a very limited amount of information that gave us best estimate of where, you know, we, we kind of knew where he slept most nights um, and what time he probably started in the morning. So we used that information and were able to then have those two scales alongside mine to give the crew a lot of information if I was going faster or slower when they would make decisions to push me towards JB's pace if that was going to be how it unfolded or, you know, as a, if I was inching closer to Nikki's pace, like when was I in the danger zone of falling, you know, too far out of it, that kind of thing. So it worked out really well. And my plan was, I actually, I initially thought before I went out there in October that I would follow Nikki's pacing, which was to do about 62 miles that first day. And I would try and match her and then just do better right at the end. Um, a lot, that's a lot of how FKT is approached is, is that kind of mentality of you want to match them until maybe the last day or the last kind of chunk. And then you just try and push a little bit harder to get that edge. So the, the benefit of hindsight, right? <laughs> I guess that is the benefit of hindsight of knowing exactly what time you need to get. Cause when you have a, a, you know, a benchmark, like a record, right. But, um, okay. Continue. Yeah. We want to hear this breakdown 60. So what was mild one mild day one? Was it 62 miles? So I actually, after training out there, I was like, there is no freaking way I can do 62 miles on day one and make it any further. <laughs> so I was like, I need to look for a new pacing plan. So I started looking around and I realized that JB, who obviously had a faster record time, actually went only 53 miles on day one. And I was like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And then looking at that, though, I was like, well, now I know why Nikki pushed on 10 more miles, because that puts you at a road crossing, right? That puts you where your crew is with like a vehicle or a tent or something to sleep in. That doesn't leave you in the middle of the woods sleeping on the side of the trail. So JB, though, had used the shelter as his benchmark. So I really was like pretty hellbent on sticking to that. I was like, that seems like the right place to stop. Like, I just didn't feel like going further was good. So that was how we brought Kurt into the 
plan and primed him up for his hiking duties and setting up Bear Hollow Shelter to be this lovely place for me and Matt to sleep on night one. And we had so. so- so day one was 53 miles. 53 miles. Yeah. Okay. So we That's impressive. To... I mean, I like, I like the numbers. Okay. <laughs> and I started, I started, let's see at 5 AM and I believe I got to Bear Hollow Shelter at 1030, 1045. Um, I was in my sleeping bag. Eyes were closing at 11 PM. I know that. So that was the plan. And Haley, the, the shelter was full that night. So thank goodness Kurt had gone because he was able to get us spots, but we show up oh. and there everyone's sleeping because there's nothing to do in the middle of the woods, really. Like, you know, these people are all through hiking and super tired. So like everyone was definitely asleep by 11 PM. So we come in and we have to be really quiet and just try not to shine our lights on people and everything like that. And, but the shelters are basically these wooden platforms that you just line up sleeping bags on. So I had to climb into the sleeping bag and I had Matt on one side, he had the wall. And then I had a stranger just on the other side. And so that was, I mean, that was my first night I had ever slept in a shelter, let alone one that was full and it is, it's just like a giant slumber party. I actually brought earplugs. So I uh, was totally fine with, with that. And did you actually sleep? I mean, were you, it sounds like you did. I mean, how many hours did you sleep? That first night I slept probably spot on to the four hours, which was our goal. So I closed my eyes around 11 and then woke up with my watch alarm at three and we were going at 3.15, 3.20. Was everyone so, else still asleep in the shelter? They were. So the poor guy next to me like kind of rolls over and looks at me and he goes, man, he goes, you guys are at it again? Like you're going already? And so I was like, yes. Yeah, so you're like, like Alyssa Gadeski, <laughs> Wandelin, remember me. Well, the funny thing is, is so there's a Facebook group for people hiking the long trail and someone did comment later, you know, they posted when they saw the news that I had broken the record someone posted, I was in Bear Hollow shelter that night. She came through and like, thank goodness. They were like, they were so quiet. Like we were really excited to have them there. And like, you know, that's, that's the last thing you need. Some like obnoxious, like, oh, she was obnoxious. Okay. So that was day one. What about the next day? So then day two, yeah. Day two was also, I think it was 55 miles. And that I had actually hoped to get to another shelter. So I knew where Nikki had slept was at the road crossing. And I knew that JB had slept at this road crossing. And I thought that there was a good chance I could push on for another couple miles and get up one more climb past them and sleep in a shelter. But unfortunately, day two, we had more of that bad weather come in. So I was really lucky in the sense that for the major summits, which are pretty exposed, like it's just these exposed rock Um, it's over 4,000 feet is considered kind of the major summits on the long trail. And there's four of them and you get up there and it's just high, it's exposed and the weather blows through super quick. And it is, you know, there's these things called bad weather bypass trails for each summit. And to get a record attempt, you can't take a bypass trail and call it a true record attempt. So you have to go up and over. And I was pretty worried given the forecast that we were going to have to like make a decision of what to do for the record type of thing with using the bypass or not or whatever, because there were such forecasts for storms blowing through on these days that I was going to be hitting those peaks. So um, luckily, though, we managed to get through the major parts without that. And then the last eight miles of day two, I did a pacer swap out. So Michelle and Alyssa and Emily or and Matt had hiked in and then Matt was swapping to pacer duties and Emily Cox was hiking out with Michelle and Alyssa. So 
they had brought kind of a little resupply with them and things were going really well. Like I had done the climb. It was, you know, I was pretty tired by then, obviously, you know, over a hundred miles and, but I was still moving really well. And then the trail there, like conditions can just change so quickly. So while it was pretty dry on the ascent of that section going down and then on the other side of the mountain was actually really wet. And that changes everything when it's that rocky and that technical. So it really slowed us down. And I don't think that would have been, you know, the thing that did us in that day. But then we started hearing rumbles of thunder and we're like, oh, no. And once again, the skies opened up. And so it was dark. At that point, it was, you know, probably 11 p.m. or later. It was dark and your headlamps just shining into these sheets of rain coming down and you can't see anything. And the trail at that point is actually pretty hard to follow, too. So it just it was just slow. I think we moved five miles in two and a half hours. So it was just really slow, but we were in, you know, good spirits. Things were fine. We were like, we can do this. And then the thunderstorm grew on top of us right as we had about two and a half, two miles or so left. Is this like 1am? I'm like trying so to this do the is math midnight. Here. Yeah. So this is a little after yeah. midnight. And our goal was to be at that road crossing by 1230, right? So we had... You've been going since 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we're going like on like 22 hours. Yeah, of day two, yeah. And yeah. so our goal was to be at that road crossing by 1230, and we figured... if The road crossing is 55 miles. Mm-hmm. And if we're there, then I could push on to the shelter. Like that would give me enough time to get up there and fit with our sleeping plan. So that's inching closer and closer. And we have one more little like ascent to go up to this place called Molly Stark's balcony, which is, it's not huge, but it is an exposed rock portion of the trail. And the thunderstorm is right on top of us. And I just don't have a lot of, you know, and Matt doesn't either. Like we run on trails a lot, but we don't have a lot of real like outdoors experience to know what's truly safe and what's truly not. And it's scary. Like you're out there and it's just, it's scary. So We knew enough and we had certainly done a ton of research going into this about, you know, best efforts to try and discern what is safe and what isn't in these kinds of situations. And the lightning was just right on top of us as we're supposed to basically jump onto this rock and then you like run across probably 50 meters or something. And then you kind of get off on the other side and go down back below tree line. So I looked at Matt and I was basically like, we can't go now. We have to wait this out. But then it's pouring down rain and it's Vermont in the nighttime. So it's getting cool, right? So, I mean, within seconds of stopping, I start to feel myself getting pretty cold really fast. And I just looked at him and I was like, if it's not blowing through in four minutes, we have to decide if we're just going to run for it or what. And so we looked at his watch and we like set, you know, the, the timer for four minutes. And then we sat huddled together under the rock just dead silence, just watching the seconds tick tip by and listening to the thunder and watching the lightning and getting really, really cold. And then at three minutes, I looked up and you could just tell the lightning was pretty far off at that point. Like it had definitely blown through. So I was like, okay, we're going. And, you know, I just hopped up and ran across and he followed. And then the rain continued that night. But I think like our adrenaline got going so much during that, that we we're still in like really good spirits, like I said, and we came out of the trail um, around 1.30. So we were an hour behind that projected pace. Um, and we were, we were kind of laughing to each other, like, what if the crew's not there? Ha ha ha, you know, but then we're getting closer. And we're like, oh my God, the crew is going to be there, right? Because you, 
you're tired and you're getting hungrier. Yeah. You don't, you don't have a cell phone that works out here. I imagine like your crew doesn't know where you are. Right. And they don't know that you're an hour late or they, they know you're an hour late, but they don't know. I mean, they're probably thinking, did we miss her? Is she ahead? Like, right. I mean, how do you, I was carrying that spot tracker, which you can see the tracking things on, but that's hit or miss on a trail like that because of like, I think the clouds like affect it. I think trees affect it where we are it always just, you know, you can never really tell if you're getting a good signal out, but then that parking lot where they were waiting, I knew I had been to there several times in training, you get zero service. So like, even if we could get something out, they wouldn't be receiving it. They're not sitting there able to check on the, the spot tracker where we are or anything. So I was like, either the weather could be like, that's the thing about Vermont too. Like who knows if they're sitting in perfect weather over, you know, two more miles and they're just like, what's taking them so long? Um, or if they're sitting there worried sick and, you know, really just hoping for the best. So it it definitely was that they were pretty worried. Um, we came into there and I think they expected, they had just sat through the whole storm in the cars and they were scared of the storm, safe in the cars. And so they were terrified for us out on the trail. And we were just like in pretty good spirits because I think we just felt so like badass for making it through. It was like, yes, like this is the adrenaline push we needed. Like, let's get food. Let's get to bed. Let's keep this thing going. And they were like, okay, you know, and they, it was actually, I mean, now again, it's the middle of the night. We're in this dark parking lot in the middle of rural Vermont and I'm watching, you know, my best friends like scurry around and they're bringing me shoes for tomorrow and they're bringing me clothes. But then like everything was so chaotic. It was also kind of funny, like someone would bring shoes and then someone else would come around and like put the shoes back because they were also trying to like clean everything and not get it wet. And so it was a pretty funny night in general. And I think that was like just a really fun perspective for me. And I think I looked at Hillary at one point and I was like, you know, of all the things going on at the world right now. And like, we're doing this in this parking lot. Like, this is just nuts, you know? And she just laughed. And so it's great. So day two was 55 miles. Yes. How much did you sleep? I did you sleep another? Yeah. So my my goal was to sleep four hours. um, And I probably I slept much worse that night. I think I maybe got three hours of actual sleep because because of the rain, we didn't have a lot of sleeping options. So we had to sleep closed into the back of my FJ cruiser. So two people in the back. At least you have an FJ Cruiser and not a Corolla. (laughs) Very true. Um, But there's like a good tilt in the back. So my body had like the blood flow was like pretty rapidly happening. So I was torn between like, do I want my feet up and all the blood rushing to my head? Or do I want like my head on the incline so that like my feet are getting more cankly? So I was like flip-flopping between all that. But um, it was, I mean, it was fine. It was the best we could do with what we had to do. Um, so that was the goal to try and to, to sleep, try and sleep about four. I probably slept about three. Um, and then we had enough stuff with us. So the morning, you know, the alarm went off and we basically popped up Are and you talking like a 4am alarm, 5am alarm. I'm so that was that there. actually the sun was, the sun was already up when, or oh, just coming luxurious. up. I know. Right. I actually <laughs> woke up in the middle of the night. I like made Mac get up too, because I was like, we're being towed. We're being towed. <laughs> Because I heard, I like woke up to the sound of this big truck and I was like, oh my God, it's probably illegal to be sleeping in this parking lot. And they know we're here and there's a car towing us. And like, Haley, we looked out and like, there's this huge 18 wheeler out there, but it was not a tow truck. We were not getting towed. He's like, oh, go good. back to You're good. Okay. So 5 a.m. You're back on the trail. We got back on the trail. So what, what day three? What's your mileage there? The mileage goal was another, it was going to be a big day. So this was going to be the day I was going to try and push ahead of JV's pace. 
um, okay. because now basically right now you were at you were like at JB's pace right you were so, at that, and Nikki's pace so Nikki also Nikki. slept there day two so we were all even keel seeing that the records are like actually like identical for the first part, but I guess yeah. it's like what you were saying before, but okay, go ahead. Day so three, day mileage. three, my like goal mileage, I think was a little over 60 miles. That was like what I was hoping to do. Um, and so the day started out great. Um, I felt pretty good, all things considered. Uh, and that was definitely going as planned and we were just going to make a push for it. And then I think around midday, I started to just fall off of pace. And so my crew started to see that, you know, I actually didn't really realize it right away um, because I still felt okay. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'm sure I'm doing fine. But I think I had fallen off that they started to be like, eh, I think we need a contingency plan here. And so I was hoping to make it all the way to Killington to sleep. And um, there's, there's actually a hotel that's like a mile away from the trail in Killington. So you can sleep there when it's like a pretty minimal time to get you there and back. It would be like a bed for me, that kind of thing. Um, but I also was starting to get, feel the effects of like all of the miles and all of the, the lack of sleep. And so I was really, you know, I just wasn't in a position at that day to be making the decision. And I think that's definitely when control shifted over to my crew a lot to make the decision. We had like one tense moment where I was at the, you know, and I was like, I want to sleep here. <laughs> I was like, I want to sleep where JB slept. And he slept at this road called Green Road, which to be honest, none of us have ever figured out exactly where Green Road even is. And I was like, I want you guys to find Green Road and I will sleep there. <laughs> and they're looking at me like, I mean, just, you know, and all of a sudden I just see it in their faces. Like I'm, I need to let go. Like it is time for me to let go of the control. And so I said, I, I, I think I said something along the lines of like, sorry, guys, like, just tell me what to do now. <laughs> and they said, we got you a hotel room. We're going to meet you at Elbow Road and get you from there. It's a five minute drive. You'll get to sleep in a bed. And that's like where you're sleeping tonight. You just have to make it through this 17, I think 17 mile section. And so I was like, oh, okay. So, but this 17 mile section was one I hadn't seen before. And, um, Again, I had falsely, you know, I, I should have never, I should have learned to never assume that things are easy on the long trail because I thought this was going to be an easier section. And of course, as it works in the middle of the night, when you're doing miles on the trail in the dark, nothing is easy. And that section almost broke me. <laughs> I, I still had enough of like consciousness around me to that. At one point I just sat down and I had my friend Carly and I had Matt with me and I just looked at them and I said, I'm having a bit of a mental breakdown. Like, and they just kind of were like, oh, okay. You know, I think they expected a mental breakdown to be a little bit more like emotional. Or and, crying. Yeah. <laughs> and I just didn't know what to do because I was really starting to feel like this was, this was really hard. Like this was really hard. So, um, you know, we like, again, I'm just really lucky. I had great crew with me. They kept me fed and kept me moving and reminded me it's just one foot in front of the other. And we did, we got to Elbow Road and that ends up being about still 54 miles, I think. Um, okay. So your goal was 60. You made yeah. it 54. Um, what was your sleep that night? Did you get any extra sleep since you, you know, was that, did that allow you some extra sleep? I took a full four hours that night in the hotel with my eyes shut. So off the trail was probably closer to like almost five hours that night. Um, okay. 
And then, and at that point, are you still on Nikki's record? We think I'm still, I actually was a little bit ahead at that point. Um, it's a little bit unclear exactly like where she slept at that point, but Mm. based on everything else, I was probably a little bit ahead at the end of when I was sleeping. Okay. So what about day four? So day, I know day four, again, we're just hoping for another like 55 ish mile day. Right. So, um, I start going, you know, again, I'm feeling okay. Like I'm even run shuffling a little bit. Things are going well. And then kind of the same story. Like I just start to drag my pace a little bit. And again, like I didn't really realize it as much as everyone else. Um, but then at this point, since we had changed the sleeping locations for the other days, that also messes up like our planned locations for the future. So then like they have to come up with a new plan for sleeping. So, and again, you're limited a lot of times by either hiking into a shelter or sleeping at the road crossing. And so since we didn't have plans to have someone be hiking, cause you have to be some familiar with some of the side trails and things like that to do that and comfortable just camping, you know, alone for a bit. Um, we were just subject to the road crossings. And so we made the decision or the crew made the decision to have me kind of do a shorter day and to, it was a nice night. They could set up like an air mattress in the back of the FJ for me, which was very luxurious. And so that day was only like 48 or 49 miles. Um, and it ended pretty early. Like I ended that day, I think I got started from Killington probably around 6am and I ended around 8pm. Um, and I, they were going to give me four hours of sleep. I was like begging for the four hours again. So we did that. And then they said at midnight, um, we will start to hike through the night for the next segment. And they kind of said like, and then you'll do a big push to the end. And I remember thinking at that point, like, I think that still means I have really far to go for like a big push. And so I kind of was worried about that, but I, I didn't think about it too much. Um, and so I slept in the back of my car at day four and Will and Matt took naps outside the car in like hammocks and just on the floor basically. And then we all got up and were hiking by 1230 at night. And that was a really cool way to do it. I will say hiking into sunrise seemed to work much better than like trying to just power through the night as the sun goes down. It's definitely like you feel different effects of that and stuff as you go. How how big was this final push? Well, I, I mean, it's day five. I mean, is that like, you know, when we're talking day five, five, five days, two hours, was that 26 hours straight? Yeah, basically. So at that point, starting after that sleep, I had 60 miles to go, which, you know, it seems doable. And like all the things are telling you, well, the Southern part's the easy part and all these things. And what you just don't know is that like that heavy rain had hit the Southern part pretty hard in the last couple of days. And the trail was in really tough condition and it was really wet and really muddy and really slow. Um, and we were also entering the sleep deprivation time where we just didn't know how I was going to do with sleep, the sleep deprivation, which I think everyone had a blast with in those last 60 miles. So, but again, like, you know, I started out and things were good. Like we really enjoyed hiking through the night. We actually had a full moon. So that was really cool. And things, I actually came into the first checkpoints that morning ahead of pace of what we thought. So things were rolling and I think everyone was like, okay, we can do this like 60 mile push. And shortly after that, things definitely started to turn. And I just started to really feel like it felt like a bonk, um, like a nutrition bonk. And so everything I've ever done in training and all my other experience with sports has always taught me that, you know, this, when you start feeling this way, you just take in calories and hydrate more and do these things. 
And no matter what I was eating or drinking, nothing was like helping. And I was like, this is the sleep deprivation side of things. So I started to take in more caffeine, which is even kind of crazy considering what I had been taking in. And I would feel awake for maybe 15 or 20 minutes and I'd feel good and normal. And then I would just feel awful again. And I started to just really kind of like my, everything just started to go on the downward spiral at that point, as I realized like sleep was what's going to fix this. And that's really hard to come by to still be on record pace. So um, what I did was I used my negotiation skills. Uh, I was kind of like, am I going to get to sleep at all? And they were like, well, you can take a nap here. And I was just like, I don't think I can make it there. How about we have the pacers carry a sleeping bag through this next segment And then when we get to the shelter at the top of the mountain after 10 miles, I can take a one hour nap. You know, I was like, I think this is going to be best. It'll rejuvenate me for the descending and blah, blah, blah. And so they actually agreed to that. So I was allowed a one hour nap in a shelter at the top of Glastonbury Mountain. And that gave me a short little boost. And then I made it down to the next checkpoint, which ended up being the last like crew stop that I saw people. And I was in a pretty tough spot at that point. I just, you know, I didn't even feel like super safe on the technical stuff. I just, all I wanted was sleep. And so I was like, can I please just have another little nap? And they were like, go sleep in the back of the FJ. And I swear, I thought they gave me like a five minute nap, which it turns out it was like 30 minutes or so. And at that point, my body, I had 14 miles to go. And my like left quad had also started to really lock up. And so Hillary just, you know, didn't want me taking too much time, like stopped either, because they were all concerned about my body, like continuing as well at that point. So we got up and started the longest 14 miles of my life after that. And during that time, I had my one final nap of the trip, because I I had my epic meltdown Haley it finally happened I had my feet had held up really well but then as I said those last couple days the trail was super wet and the mud I'm talking about like you put your foot in the trail and the mud covers your up to your ankle like it's just shoe sucking mud step after step and there was no chance of keeping my feet too dry so they started to really disintegrate before my eyes and the blisters started to really pop up at that point and it just hurt so bad. I was so tired. I was just like ready to be done. And I knew how close I was. But I also was just so upset at how far away that seemed at that point. And I'm just hiking up a climb. I'm making like noises, just grunting, trying to like get myself, you know, my poles, I I looked ridiculous. And I felt the blister on my heel pop. And the pain just was so bad. And that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. I just had a full on crying, sobbing meltdown. And I had Emily and Matt with me at that point. And I just sat on the ground and was like, I, this is, I don't know what to do. Like everything hurts. This is, we're never going to get there. Like, what are we doing? And I was like, and my blister just popped. (laughs) So they were like, well, let's look at the blister. So I put my leg up. They started to look at it. And like they had brought dry socks, which was amazing. So we were like, okay, let's get this changed. And as they were doing the blister care, I leaned back. And some of you might also see this picture um, floating around the internet because I leaned back into the fern bush and it felt like a down comforter just surrounded me and it was the most comfortable thing I had ever slept in. in. And I remember thinking like, this is nice. And that's all I remember until I'm being 
shaken awake and I just have a headlamp in my face and a bright spotlight. And I thought I was done. I was like, oh, am I done? Like, did I do it? And they were like, no, you just fell asleep in the fern bush. You have eight miles to go still. But luckily, whatever they did to my foot made it feel like I had an entirely new leg. And so I was able to kind of move at that point again, somewhat like a normal human would. And then about two hours later, the sun came up. And again, just the effect of that sunlight, man, you start to believe that like things are going to happen and things are going to be okay. And they, they called off the last crew stop because they were worried if I saw people, I would just stop and sit down and not keep going for the last three miles. So they made me keep just walking through that and get to the, the finish line there. But it was in that, so that finished that last big kind of 26 hours, I guess, was about 60 miles. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I just want to recap these numbers because I think they're so impressive. We're talking 53 miles, 55 miles, 54 miles, 49, and then 62 to get to 273. So I'm giving you an extra two miles there on that 62. But I mean, that's insane. That's awesome. That's so incredible. I mean, thank you for sharing the story. Cause I think it's, you know, when we look at those numbers and it's like, you know, that's a lot. And to do it day after day after day is very impressive. I do need to ask about something I saw on Instagram and that was a video of your parents showing up on the trail. And was this a surprise? And like, how did that make you feel? So it wasn't a surprise. I knew I had invited them to come up, but I thought maybe having them along for the whole time was a little bit much for everyone. Um, I wanted my crew to get into a good rhythm and do what they needed to do without my parents there because my mom is like famous for being a, a, like worrying about me because um, she's my mom and that's what she does. And so I, you know, I knew if they came at the latter part to see the finish, they could be there kind of for the good stuff. And that was the plan. They had planned to arrive on Sunday. Um, and since, you know, our projections had me further along, we thought, I thought they would be seeing me at a later stop, but since I wasn't moving that fast, they, they were at an earlier stop. And I will say like something about the whole thing made me very emotional from literally like the start point, Haley. I mean, I think coming into that first aid station, I'm not even a, a crier usually, but the first time I saw all of these people that like I love just standing there for me and like clapping and cheering for me after I had done only 10 miles of the trail, I like wanted to cry then. So by day four, when my parents came in and I kind of turned out of the trail and saw my mom and dad, it was like, you know, I just, I couldn't contain myself. I can cry now even just thinking about it. And it was just, I mean, they, they wanted nothing else than for me to succeed. So, and I knew that and they knew that, like I knew they were going to be worried about me, but they also knew that they were going to be there to help and to keep me going and that kind of thing. So it was really special to have them there. I think this is something that's really hard to understand and to even like grasp what it really is. And I couldn't have done it justice just telling them the stories or having that. I mean, they, my mom's not on Facebook, so she couldn't even like have watched the videos from afar. So to have them be able to see it in person and really see what I went through was really important because I mean, they've made me the athlete that I am, right? Like they brought me up with these values and how they, however they did it, they raised me to have like a lot of determination and grit and like a lot of just the, this ability to really keep trying. And I was, really happy that they could see that, you know, and that it paid off and that we could celebrate that together. So that was really, really special. 
what was it like finishing? And did you know that you would set a new women's supported record? I did. So going into the last three miles was when I finally was like, this is, this is safe. You know, I mean, there were a lot of moments going into that last day where I wanted to, like I said, beat David Horton's record of four days, 22 hours. And then I wanted to get under five days. And then, you know, it was just like, man, like these things keep coming out of my control. But finally it was like, okay, like I have, you know, seven hours or something to do the next four miles, three miles. So I can do this. Um, and it's going to happen. And it's just so funny because, you know, you're used to finishing something and there's a crowd there and, you know, you get a medal on your neck and there's all this kind of cheering and big things. And I think everyone was so relieved and so happy, but also so tired because as much as I didn't sleep, my crew was getting probably the same or less amounts of sleep. I mean, Hillary and Mike also had their three month old and their 18 month old out there. And so like everyone had their hands full with a million things over those five days. And we were all the happiest, like really, really exhausted people you can imagine. And I think also partly because you then have to hike like three and a half miles out, right? So it's not like the trail ends at a road crossing and you're done and you can like get in your car and celebrate and go shower and clean off. You have to then spend another couple hours trying to get out of the woods. And I think we all knew that was ahead of us. And so that was just like even more daunting. So it, it was just this like very, you know, they cheered and they clapped and all I wanted to do was sit down. But I was just like so delirious that, you know, it was definitely a really special moment because I had all of these people around that love me and that are super close to me. And, but it was like the quietest happy moment you could ever really imagine, I think. <laughs> um, and we mentioned Nikki Kimball several times previously on this episode. She was the previous women-supported record holder. And I heard that she actually reached out to you, I believe via Facebook, prior to the start to wish you luck. Have you uh, talked to each other since then? So she did. She wished me luck. And I saw a few times on some of the posts during even that she was cheering for me and commenting along with the sections that I was going through and really pulling for me. So um, she definitely was watching and, and was excited for me. And afterwards, she shared the news that I had the new record and wished me the best there. Um, and she also, you know, pointed out that like, I got us a little closer, but that like, the men's record could still be beatable. And there are women that we know that could potentially, you know, keep helping us chisel that time factor down. So she, you know, she definitely still has that mindset that we got to keep going for that, that men's record, get that overall time. And, and I do, I, I would agree with her. I think, I think someone can do it. All right. Okay. This last segment I have is sort of a rapid fire. I'm calling it by the numbers, very much a Haley Chura segment here. <laughs> okay. Let's try to do these quick. How many pairs of shoes? Five. How many pairs of socks? Ten, but Leslie had to do multiple laundry runs, so it was probably, you know, like every clean pair was probably 20. How many pairs of underwear? None, because (laughs) I don't wear underwear under my running shorts. But, Haley, this is actually an important thing. Because it was so wet in those days, I had, like, severe – I didn't realize it till it was really done – but I had, I would have worn underwear if that would have helped this. I had severe chafing diaper rashes. I had to go buy diaper cream, diaper rash cream and use it for like five days afterwards. It was a major problem. How many showers? 
None. I didn't even touch my hair until day four. So I now have like dreadlocks too, which is great. All right. How many food stops per day? I would say five on average, probably. Okay. And about how many calories did you keep count? I was taking in about 300 an hour and I was moving for about 20 hours a day. So about, what is that? I can't even, 6,000 calories. Know. 6,000 calories a day, I guess, was the goal. And because this is not fit my, my, my like little grid here, but what, what were these calories mainly? I saw a bunch of pierogies. <laughs> Did you just like, they had like a nice grill set up out there. My initial plan was like pierogies and Pop-Tarts and F2C and like a, but like I had this whole buffet planned in my head and Haley, the F2C nutrition five to one, like the um, endurance five to one, which is actually a new product that they got me like right when it was ready to be able to use this. I would have gone solely with that. It was what I had the most of, I would say it was like 75% of the calories I consumed during the whole thing. I loved it. I became like addicted to it. And my entire crew could not believe that I never got sick of it. And I just kept asking for that when they were like, what do you want to eat? What do you want to eat? I was like, give me the F2C, please. It was amazing. How many times did you laugh? Probably a lot. So my crew did a really good job of keeping me entertained. And this is actually funny too. So they were all having like a completely separate life than what I was leading while I was, you know, hiking on the trail. So as you would imagine, as they're traveling the length of Vermont, funny things and just, you know, like tense moments and like problem solving is happening out there. And then they would be rotating in with me. And so I got to hear all of the stories of what was happening with them through the perspective of every single person, which was really, really fun because, you know, I would hear like Matt's version of the story and then like Carly would come in. So I could hear Carly's version of it. And then I, I never once, I like wanted them to keep talking for the most part. So I never told them like, oh, I've heard this story already because I also was so interested in the whole like social study of it, of how it kind of came across from everyone's different perspectives. That was really fun for me. How many times did you cry? I cried out of desperation that one time with the blister situation. I cried from happiness with like, you know, maybe not full on crying, but at least five times. How many times did you want to quit? I, I actually think zero. I don't think I ever got to a point where I wanted to throw the talent. I definitely got to the point where I wanted sleep and I was asking for some sleep breaks. But I, I stayed kind of focused, I think. Uh, my crew might tell you something else on, on keeping going. How many times did you see other people on the trail? I mean, it sounds like you had a full shelter, maybe a lot. It was a lot. So the southern section is actually the last 100 miles are the same as the Appalachian Trail. It like is the same trail for a little bit before it splits off. So that part's actually pretty crowded. And this is a time of year when there's a lot of through hikers in addition to like day hiking people and stuff. So I would see, you know, the northern section is a little more remote and not as crowded in terms of day hikers, but you always saw at least a handful of people through the day, um, sometimes a lot more. And I will say on the start of day four, I think for the first like six hours or so, I was only seeing women out there. So I was seeing like women hiker, women hiker, women, women hiker, and then like a mom and her daughters and like all these. And I was like, this is a sign. Like someone is sending in all of these women to like tell me to keep going. And then like the next person I saw was a man. And I was like, oh, like it's ruined. <laughs> nah, still there. How much did this cost? That's a great question. So I haven't actually done an official tally with like, you know, to the nickel. 
if I had to give a breakdown, I would guess that total it costs $10,000, I think would be pretty darn close. So a lot of that definitely comes from having lived in Vermont um, and finding lodging in those towns for two months ahead of time. That's about half of that. And then the other stuff comes from everything from buying trekking poles and then spare trekking poles and things like that to the spot tracker and the subscription, the rental truck, the gas and food for the cars for my crew as they were going, hotels, like two rooms for a hotel for each night along the way for the crew and before and after, flights for a lot of the crew, all of that adds up pretty quick. So I would guess I would guess I did it as like frugally but comfortably as I could because I knew keeping people, you know, somewhat comfortable was going to be key to keeping it a success. How long do you think this record will last? I hope for a while. <laughs> there was actually as I was starting, I will say there was a woman posting that she was going to start a week later. And she ended up not doing it. So I don't know if it was because she saw how, how well I had done, but I haven't seen anyone else really talking about it this season. And so I'm, I'm really hoping I hang on to it for at least, you know, a year until next season comes, maybe someone else can try. But I think after having done it and now knowing what would go into doing it faster, I feel pretty confident I could have this for a while. How many more trail records do you think you will attempt? Well, if you do go to fastestknowntimes.com, you will see that you there are trail records to be had all over the place. And this is a really fun, real life, like amazing race for me now. I love doing this. And like I said, I'm becoming more comfortable with the idea of self-supported ones. And so that's very intriguing to me for some of these. But I would say seriously that I have my eye on maybe three other ones that I would like to try. Cool. Well, Lisa. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. It's always a treat to talk to you. And this has been fun to like interview you a little bit, but um, no, it's, it's an incredible feat. I mean, it was incredible to watch and it's even more incredible to hear you tell the story. So thank you. Thanks, Haley. It's always fun. Thanks for everyone who followed along. I, in those last few days, I needed every ounce of strength that was being sent my way and it was really nice to be able to get kind of a rundown on some of the comments and some of the encouragement people were giving. Um, it was, I can't explain enough how special all of that was to me. And I know too, if you just can't get enough of the FKT business that on livefeisty.com, just keep an eye out. We have another video coming out and um, some other questions to be answered. And so that way we can, I'm, I'm going to continue riding this out for a while, Haley. So hopefully you guys aren't quite too sick of it yet. <laughs> yes. And thank you to all our listeners for um, coming back and listening to us after our break and all of our adventures. We have so many fun things coming up. It is, we are right on the brink of world championship season with the 70.3 world championships coming up next month. Kona the month after that. So much more racing left in the season. It's actually like just, you know, the fun part is just getting started. So lots of interviews coming Our more traditional iron women professional triathlete um, interviews. So keep listening. And again, if you have mailbag questions for us, that email address is ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you just want to say hi, <laughs> we can, you know, you can write it in on there too. All right, Haley, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Alyssa. Talk to you later.
of my heart is in Havana. Ooh, na, na. Okay. Why I like biking? You're really moving your feet, and it's fun because you can actually steer where you're going when you want to. Whereas in swimming and running, you might have to plan ahead because in both of those things, either in swimming, you can run out of breath, or in running, you could trip and fall. The Iron Woman podcast is produced by Live Feisty Media. Our awesome hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Our editor is Aaron Hamilton. Our social media queen is Danielle Adino. And our producer is my mom, Sarah Gross. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Leave us a review on iTunes. And have a great week of swimming, biking, and running. Bye for now. Bye for now.